Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the world traveler, with the man who has so much gaming built up that he's going to explode. Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos, what's going on? Uh, I am a dangerous person. I have not gamed in two weeks. It's uh, very dangerous situations here. And there's Gen Con happening uh, over there. There's lots of gaming in the air. Yep. It's infectious. Well, there's lots of news in the air as well, which we can cover. And after we do that, we'll continue with our interrupted but yet still intriguing look at 5th edition D&D, where it has been and where we think it's going. Superb. Yeah. So the first bit of news, it's a little old news at this point, but it's still news, is that the Unearthed Arcana has released the, the next version of it called Wonders of the Multiverse. And it was pretty hefty. It was like a 12-page PDF, and it contained a lot. We're yeah. not we're not going to cover it blow by blow like we sometimes do, because it would probably take us three full weeks to do that if we just focused solely on that. But we'll give it a we'll give it a a, a glance. Um, the first bet is they have a new race called the Glitchling. This again reinforces this sort of planar multiverse theme that we've seen a bit over the the last uh, month or so. Uh, these are cre- creatures created by the forces of planar law. They are winged human like creatures made from a merger of magic and machine. So it's almost like a more human or more uh like organic version of uh what do you call those things modrons modrons thank you yeah no that's exactly what i was thinking in fact i found myself thinking a lot about tony detrelisi's art which sometimes made the modrons not sometimes it made the modrons seem very organic as well as mechanical right and so these creatures sort of work for these law-based planes. Uh, uh, Mechanically, they have a few interesting tweaks. They have armored plating. So, you know, we're going to think of what we've seen already in Aberon with the Warforged. So you have like a 14 plus your dex armor class if you're not wearing armor. They have stygial wings that allow them some minimal flight. Um, Balance Chaos is a a mechanic they have where a certain number of times per day, that being your uh, proficiency bonus times, if you roll a nine on an att- less than nine or less on an attack roll or a saving throw, you get to count it as a 10. And then it has the living construct uh, description. So you can cast spells like cure wounds on it and it will uh, heal. Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think a lot of people saw this and thought, "Is Planescape coming?" Yeah, that's right? what I thought. Uh, right, <laughs> and 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 yet, it's different enough. All of the things that we find in this uh, UA that that it makes you wonder whether they might do something a little different than Planescape. But uh, but I'm I'm very curious. Or or would it just be an adventure like like a, a new version of the March of the Modrons kind of thing, or the Modron March? It's yeah. possible. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's certainly, something's going on, right? I mean, right. have we seen a UA that was heavily themed that didn't point to something? I don't think so, right? Not, not, not yet, or not that I'm aware of. So, yeah, it, it's it's interesting. And with all the releases that they have going in all these different directions, 
you don't necessarily, I think you were sort of getting at, you don't need a big book for this. You know, right. you could do a campaign and publish it on D and D beyond and, sure. and call yeah. that, call that good. It saves you all that publishing cost. It pushes people toward D and D beyond, which is what wizards wants at this point. Uh, you know, it, it does, it does a lot of things without the cost uh, associated with a huge publishing. Yeah, though there is still work, right? That's one of the things that I've been surprised, and not to get too far off track, but I think this is probably interesting to people, but looking at the Spelljammer uh, releases on D&D Beyond, um, they're substantial. And -hmm. you can tell that this required a lot of hours of work by a lot of different people Mm -hmm. to get this you know, what is essentially web content out right. there, right? right? Rather than a published work. And it fulfills a lot of purposes. You can use it for Adventures League play. You know, there are a lot of different ways that, that it, and it's great and it's good stuff, but it isn't like it's just, oh, you know, hire someone, just write a thing and throw it out there. Like there, there, there's a lot of work. And so even if you did something web-based, mm-hmm. you know, D&D Beyond-based, it's, it's still, it's yeah. amazing how much work it takes. And, and I guess the question is how far off are you from the step of, you know, how much effort is it to do the next part of the layout and mm-hmm. printing, yeah. you know, like, I, I don't know. Well, ask the people who, you know, have the supply chain issues and can't get something published or can't get it delivered or get it stuck in a, you know, well, cart, a crate in the, yeah. in the and, know, and then Red I mean, Sea. To, speak to sort of what you were saying at, at the beginning of this, like, what is it achieving, right? Like, how is it reaching an audience, right? So we saw the Vecna stuff that was just on D&D Beyond as web content, Um sort of tie into the stranger things interest and, and possibly be a good way to get eyeballs over to D and D beyond from someone who's just searching things. And so maybe that's super great, or maybe it didn't do much. And it's, it's hard to assess those things, right? What are you achieving with say the spell jammer, D and D beyond release versus a larger adventure or a separate adventure that you sold an intro spell jammer box set. There's so many ways you can go about these things, right? And I'm sure Wizards is trying to find out what works, but I suspect it's really hard to find out what works. Mm-hmm. Well, and so I, with something yeah. like this, a Planescape thing, it's probably very hard. There probably isn't any great data that says, oh, here's what you should do. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. You'd never know until you do the thing. You can forecast and you can base it on all the metrics you want that have come before, but everything is different than the last thing. So you you never can tell. But what it does is it allows you to reach your fan base in a certain way. Here's 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 what I'm thinking. Yeah. They had a very slow release schedule when 5e came out. Mm-hmm. And some people complained about it, but the book sold mm-hmm. because there wasn't a glut. Now we're getting to the point where people are like, please, no more. <laughs> right. I, I've heard more than one person online say, I don't want any more player rules. Give yeah. me campaigns. Give me, I don't want, I can't keep up with what's already there. Yeah. So, so you can, if, if you're a completionist, you can publish those things. Wizards can publish those things that will allow people to buy the books and be a completionist without overwhelming them while using online, while using the web, while using D&D Beyond to give other things that people might want without tipping the scale too far 
in a direction and it's a balancing act and it might work it might not but at least yeah. those options are there like they haven't been in the past yeah and, and that ties into what uh, a strong feeling i had reading over this uh ua because it is so surprisingly dense and i found myself thinking wow like these ua articles are, are it feels like they're getting denser mm-hmm. and at a time when I would think that they wouldn't be more dense. And why is that? Right. Yeah. And it could be because we're ramping up for a new version of the game that, that they're either testing or that they're for this version of the game, they're going to hit us with everything that a, you know, I don't want to say power gamer, but you know, everything a really tactical Mm -hmm. uh, rules, heavy gamer might want get that out into, into the, the bloodstream of the gaming world. And then with 5.5 with 6C, whatever you want to call it, cut it all back down and say, if you want to play that really tactical game, we've given you everything you need now here. (laughs) It's compatible enough. Right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it it could be. I, I don't know. Huh. Yeah, is it you know like I was reading the the fate domain, which mm-hmm. is one of the cleric subclasses here, and while it it is you know undoubtedly new and different, I actually found myself thinking, aren't there isn't there already something like this? Yeah, I, I'm pretty much there with all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, the fate domain it's it seems fine. It, you know, it makes sense in the story of different worlds, Istis mm-hmm. and Greyhawk, right? Uh, Savras in the Forgotten Realms, Fate. Is it different than Luck? I guess, yeah. Uh, But then I get to the backgrounds, and and right, I feel like Gate Warden, Giant Foundling, Planar Philosopher, Rune Carver. I feel like even if I haven't seen it from Wizards already, I've seen it from a big Mm -hmm. third party publisher already. Uh, I feel like it's all out there already for us to use if we just choose to you know, go with a third party publisher or go with right. some of our, some of our own design. Uh, and where do you strike the difference between, you know, needing planar philosopher versus the fact that we already have the sage in the player's handbook, right? Like, it, does it really right do much for you to go to that extra level of detail? But, you know, at the same time, we're looking at this in a giant UA article. And what is different is when you have a cam- campaign, mm-hmm. And if this is part of that campaign, then it can work a lot better, right? Because, um, you know, I can I can say that that uh, any kind of explorer background is fine, but then having the particular version that's in the Cholt adventure, you know, can resonate, and that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and and so I try to be a little lighter on my critique of it because I think that it can all work when it's bound in there to to a product and has that color, and and that's a nice way to do it. Yeah. Um, one thing that's super interesting about the design of this is that the backgrounds all come with bonus feats. Yep. And, and it, it's, it is sort of like, it's not really power creep, but, but it is an increase in what you get in that. If you look at the gate warden, the whole concept is like you grew up near a planar portal mm-hmm. and I have two thoughts on that. Maybe I'll remember to get back to the one, but, <laughs> but you, okay. You grow up near a planar portal. So the feature is, you know, you have a place to stay in your town, mm-hmm. which isn't that what growing up in a town does for you? <laughs> like, like, right. I mean, 
don't I know the people in my town and somebody would take me in, right? Like how bad was that? Like imagine any town you've lived in that there's that has people that know you and really you can't crash for a night. Like, come on, right. that's just the way life works. Um, but then you get this other scion of the outer planes feet. And if you're a planar philosopher, you also get lodging through the organization and scion of the outer planes feet. And I just, I found that kind of like, really, is this what backgrounds are? Like a place to crash and a feat. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, and, it's... And, and I would have loved to have seen a bold, let's experiment with making backgrounds something wild in advance of 5.5, 6E, whatever it is, um, so that we could think about it. Because, because to me, this is actually more ho-hum than the 5E player handbook. Yeah. Yeah. I, as soon as I saw the number of feats in this UA, my eyes just glazed over Yeah, and, and I, and even browsing through them, I'm like, okay, maybe there's something cool. No, it's, it's just the, all the same. Okay. You get damage resistance if you have this feat and you get this cantrip and, and there was nothing new. There was just variations of old, uh, in, in all this, which is what you get when you are, when you get yeah. toward the end of a, of a uh, edition. So, yeah, you know, what we do see that's, I think, noteworthy is that the things we've been talking about in these UA articles are continuing. There's no backing down from mm-hmm. everybody gets a feat. So, you know, in fact, the box text says, if you, you use one of these backgrounds in, in your campaign, or if you allow this for players in your campaign, then all characters gain a bonus feat. And here's your list of bonus feats, which are sort of planar themed. Um, and so that just seems like that's just the new reality. Everybody's going to have a feat and feats aren't super optional. Mm-hmm. We also see this whole action economy thing, right? So like agent of the order is once per turn, when you damage a creature, you can deal extra damage and you're doing this a number of times your proficiency bonus. So it's a lot of that sort of tracking stuff, mm-hmm. uh, which I know you and I are not enormous fans of right. because it slows down the gameplay. But, you know, every sign is, is Wizards is not backing down from that being the, the, the direction that we're heading to, right? You track a lot of little things mm-hmm. across your character. Your subclass has them, your feats have them, your backgrounds provide them. And then, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's it's going from experiment to the way the game will be. <laughs> right, right. And you know, more power to them. There are definitely people out there who want more of that. I just don't know if it's a way to continue to grow the game by putting in these minutiae sort of powers as opposed to big, cool things that you do uh, yeah. to to make the story seem awesome. Yeah, on that note, Sean, I, I noted that the um, the new box set is is being previewed by a number of people, and and that yeah. seemed to get pretty positive reactions from folks yeah. as being something that's friendly to new players. So that that's good. And, you know, sure. obviously, Wizards thinks about this a lot, yep. uh, even if if uh, it doesn't show up in kind of all the different ways. For sure. Uh, and my box set arrived in the mail like ten minutes ago. Yeah. Uh, so I think next week, maybe for our new segment, we can uh, we can go through it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, so and, uh, just to finish off, a bunch of feats 
uh, in this UA article, and then uh, for spells, antagonize, house of cards, spirit of death, and spray of cards. So uh, if they haven't already, I'm sure they will soon be putting up the survey to allow players to give their feedback. So keep a lookout for that, and we'll let you know uh, when that happens. Boy, you know what else happened while you were away for the last couple of weeks? The oh, D&D yeah. movie trailer dropped. I uh, This is how big this was. Uh, when I was uh, in Costa Rica, I someone gave me a copy of the newspaper. And in the middle was coverage of Comic-Con, which I already found surprising. But then in this two-page article reviewing Comic-Con, there was a good piece covering the D&D movie wow. and the news about it. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Like yeah. that is, you know, just a random person in a small town in Costa Rica is reading about the D&D movie if they're reading this paper. Like that's, yeah. that's sweet. That That's something. And it did take the internet by storm. I'm sure most people have seen it by now. Uh, you know, I was, I was very happy. I wasn't looking for much in it. I was basically looking to make sure that the graphics looked like they could give us some cool things that we imagine when we play and that the graphics could bear those out. And they did. Uh, It gave us the high level plot, which wasn't too complicated, which I like. Uh, Graphics were great. The humor was there. Hit us with all the Easter eggs for different monsters and spells and you know, the Forgotten Realms theme of of the Red Wizards and Undead. And yeah, I mean, it was it was yeah. all there. Yeah. Uh, I loved it. Um, it. I think I heard very few people say anything other than positive stuff. Right. Yeah. And um, yeah. And, and I think that like, like I was talking about the Costa Rica newspaper the, the, from a business angle it seemed to reach the right places in terms of the attention you want for a movie, irregardless of D and D fans, right? Like exactly. it, it seemed like it was, it was getting hits. It was getting interest. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other than they could have made a movie about Vecna and that might've been smarter, uh, but you know, yeah. <laughs> hindsight, um, right. it, it's, it, it seems like this is exactly what you want to see. And they have big name stars saying that they really enjoyed working on this and, Mm-hmm. you know all hands on deck at these comic-con panels and, and yep. doing all the things and i mean seeing hugh grant try to like talk about D is is just classically hilarious <laughs> but he could have easily not done that he's true I mean, he's there doing it right and, and right. clearly had fun with the movie so that's that's awesome i mean yeah i don't think anybody in the world thinks that he wouldn't rather have made a serious movie or a comedy that that you know is more I don't know, you know, like right. the other things he's done that are quite poignant and relevant and memorable, but right. he clearly had a blast with this and that's awesome. Yeah. The only complaints I heard were about what wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And so I had to remind people, this is two minutes. It's not, yeah. you know, these scenes we're seeing might not even be in the movie itself. Uh, so it, it's two minutes. I'm I'm guessing that this was the let's get everybody on board. Let's get the D and D players on board with a mimic and an owl bear and and you know showing the characters doing the things that the characters do. And if there's a more serious side to it, uh, maybe we'll see that in the next trailer where we get more of the yeah. plot and more of the stakes of of what's happening in the in the movie. 
Yeah, and, and if you ever think about, you know, try to write an adventure that covers all the things an adventure can cover, you end up with a absurd adventure, right? Mm-hmm. So right. no no one project can do it all. No movie can cover it all. So you just, sure. you know, you're not going to hit all the notes. If you just, like, here's a fun exercise, and I can say that I've done this exercise. Um, look at just even the player's handbook and think to yourself that if you had to do, say, a movie or a novel, and you had to make uh, use the spells mm-hmm. that make that are iconic in D anD D, and then you realize how few times a spellcaster would say cast spells in a movie. Mm-hmm. There are so few spells you can put in there, and yet there are right. so many you would like to put in there. Yeah, right. Uh, or if you're making a board game and you're like, oh, I want to represent, you know, the weapons in D&D. Well, you can't, you're going to have like three weapons. That's it. Right, and, and right. you know, there's so many that are classic and so on and so on. So you just can't do yeah. that. It's, it's, you have, you can't get it all. Yep. And so we will keep, they try. <laughs> exactly. We will keep an eye on future D&D movie news as we always do. Uh, Outside of D&D, I noticed that there was a job announcement or several job announcements hiring at Paizo, um, a production designer, a developer, a marketing media specialist, an editor, and a test engineer. Uh, and after Paizo had been hemorrhaging people so rapidly, it was, you know, it was good to see that they're actually hiring again. So maybe things are starting to turn around and they can become, you know, a player in the industry again, like they, like they were, uh, when they came out with Pathfinder. Uh, it was interesting Can I to just say that yeah. listening to you talk with Ben, uh, reviewing all the, the D and D growth and, and, and having read John Peterson's book not too long ago, those two things overlapping with this Paizo news, I couldn't help but think, wow, will someone write the story of Paizo at some point and how fascinating that will be yeah. to read that. Yeah. And it it was good too that they gave pay scales uh, for mm-hmm. for their starting pay for these positions. Uh, it, f- most of them were in the forty thousand dollar range. Starting forty two uh, was the developer pay rate uh, at start, which is not great uh, no. for living in Seattle. Um, there was some talk of of remote work, uh, but only in certain areas. Uh, the editor wasn't even a salaried position. It was an hourly position at roughly $20 an hour to start with. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's good that we are getting more and more publishers to talk about these things so people can understand where the industry's at. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, you know, there had been a Wizards of the Coast person who shared a salary. And I want to say that a developer sort of level was something like 70 at mm. wizards. Right. So, so that's, you know, another 28,000, which is substantially different. Yeah. Um, but, but it's good. I, you know, I'd rather a company have its salary out there and say it's low than not say it's out there. I think it's better for everybody there. It's better for the people that are working there. It's better for mm. people who it's better for the company, all of that. Like, even if your pay is low, just say what it is yep. and people will either come or not. Yeah, exactly. But we're working. Right. And we can, uh, consumers can understand, you know, what, what the industry really is outside of wizards and a few other companies. So, you know, it's, it's good to know. Uh, Spelljammer Academy, while we were 
on our little break. All four adventures are out now. So Adventure 1 is Orientation by Will Doyle. Adventure 2 is Trial by Fire by Rich Lescoufler. Adventure 3 is called Realm Space Sortie by Chris Lindsay. And Adventure 4, Behold Hakatha by Gabrielle Harboui, Christopher Perkins, and Chris Tulak. It's all there. It's pre- As Teo said earlier, it's pretty significant. The, the, these are... Uh, each adventure is supposed to take you up a level, and we're not going to cover each of them in detail, but it's a it's a full story between all four of those adventures. You're talking, while it's only four levels, you're talking nights and nights of uh, of gameplay. Yeah, yeah there, and there's some nice angles to how the story is is trying to be introductory by using sort of you know various simulations and and then getting you out there into wild space itself. Um, I, I, I like it in general. I, I feel like the story, it feels like wizards said, these boxes must be checked. And some of those boxes seem like they're telling a story that staff wanted to tell rather than necessarily an audience wanted to play through. So like the scene with Mert, uh, or other aspects like that. I, I found that they're, you know, they're they're fine, but there probably is an experience that's slightly different. That it, it feels like the the author had to do this mm. rather than maybe wanted to. I'd be curious if someday I get to chat with the authors about that. But yeah. um, but it felt a little forced at times versus organic in the way that a project would be approached, and you'd come up with these concepts as a story if that makes sense yeah and it is interesting and you know since we know that it sort of went through the adventurers league process uh it seemed that Mm -hmm. uh because you know chris tulak and chris Lindsay are both involved uh will doyle rich lescoufler you know our adventurers league uh, i think gabrielle is as well um has written adventurers league stuff so it seems to be going through that. And we learned very recently that the DMs Guild uh, has now said that the setting will be unlocked for creators. So you will be able to create your own Spelljammer content and put it up starting on the 16th of August. So not two, huh. two weeks from when we record. Awesome. Yeah. Do you want to talk and, uh, about the World 20 blog there? Yeah, yeah. If, if you are looking for breakdowns of how the Spelljammer uh setting will work when it comes out uh i was fortunate to be asked by roll 20 to write a series of blogs that do just that so they break down spell jammer i have two parts out three parts probably by the time this comes out um you're listening to this part one is all about the available character options what uh, races and backgrounds um and these are all written as a series of dispatches coming from someone to who from a, a higher up to somebody who's maybe a cadet in the Spelljammer Academy. Um, part two, and, and so what I do is I mix sort of in-character information to give it that world feel. And then I'll kind of in italics break down uh, DM hints on how to run a Spelljammer campaign. So hopefully that's useful. Uh, part two looks at how travel works, which is quite fascinating because ship travel has been super different across the different uh, books, the, the, say the Dungeon Master's Guide or... Uh, salt marsh and Spelljammer yet again tweaks the formula not substantially but just enough changing how things work um so how does it work to, to navigate the astral sea how does it work to pop into wild space and move between planets what happens when two ships come in air envelopes all that it's really interesting mechanics 
Mm-hmm. Um, the next part that's coming out, we'll look at creatures. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so that you, we can read that on roll20.net? Yep. Okay. Um, in their blog section. I will go take my red pen and mark it all up for you. Please do. Please I'm do. Uh, make sure your, your pen is loaded with uh, squid ink. And, yes. Uh, yeah. Space squid. I think my next blog notes uh, the the dangers of the giant space hamster. Oh, yeah. Uh, which are substantial. Yeah. Much more dangerous than the miniature giant space hamster, for sure. Well, even those uh, are a good way to lose an eye. So yes, be careful. Uh, I've noticed uh, the new Dragonlance novel called Dragons of Deceit is now out. Uh, the Dragonlance setting itself is still uh, in process. We have not seen it released. So if you are a fan of the Dragonlance fiction line, you can now go get your latest fix. Uh, it, uh, we should note that there is no integration between plots for what wizards of the coast is doing and what weiss and hickman are doing in the novel they're sort of separate things so uh i will probably not read the novel um although i will you know hear what people have to say about it yeah it's it is such an interesting decision uh it feels sort of almost political you know to, to sort of say like yes write a novel but we're not going to tell you what our plans are for the setting. So just, you know, do your own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but these are often enjoyable tales. So yeah, I, I yeah. presume that I will read it at some point, but uh, I will, you know, wait for paperback and and, mm-hmm. and all that because yeah, I also don't like, I'm curious whether reading it could actually even throw you off from what's coming. I don't know. Yeah. That's, that's where I'm, that's where I'm at. The, my brain space is quickly filling. So I want to make sure I get the stuff in it that I need. Uh Speaking of brain space filling, the hobby game sales report is out and it is up one third in 2021. This is from ICV2 reporting that sales across all hobby games are up 0.66 billion. uh, So $660 million million. from 2020. Yeah, and I think the total is like 2.69 or something. It was 2. If I recall correctly, 2.03 in 2020 and 2.69 right. in uh, 2021. Yep. So this is the second year of COVID altered retail sales. Um, anything else that you noted in that report? It, it, it seemed like all the categories were strong. Um, so so it's all kind of good news. Um, substantial growth in RPGs, TCG sales, all of that. Um, so that's good news for, for last year, but that's not surprising. We knew last year was good. Um, I think what's interesting, what's most interesting to me, to me is, is we just had a, a Hasbro uh, earnings information come out and, and it seemed to not mention D&D at all. Hmm. And I would be very curious if we at, at all here, it's sort of like, you know, stick a pin in it. Was hmm. this sort of the first time that D&D growth slowed? Right. You know, the, that would be interesting if, if yeah. we're in a little bit of a, I mean, and, and as you and I have tried to say, I think so many over so many years, but we feel like right. fools saying it at some point growth has to slow. That's right. the way things work. In fact, yeah. at some point you have to have a loss. Like that's just yeah. nature. Yeah. Um, the tree grows and eventually falls and a new one must grow. Right. Uh, so 
you know, none of that is, is reason to run around uh, with, you know, screaming, uh, right. though, of course, executives like doing that. Yeah. Um, the reality is you just must have some slower times and, but right. this may be them. And, and so more interesting than whether it's slowed is maybe what the company does about it, right. how they react to it. Yeah. And when does it generally slow the most when you announce that a new edition is coming out because then people stop buying things and are waiting for the new edition. So, you know, it sometimes turns into a self-fulfilling prophecy when you do announce that new edition. So yeah, it'll be, like you said, we'll put a pin in it and we'll see uh, if it comes to pass. So that's the news this week. We couldn't even cover it all because it's been a few weeks since we've done the news. Uh, but we want to get back to our main topic that we started three weeks ago, um, which is about revisiting 5E and predicting or examining where it might be headed with a new edition. So to review, it's been about 10 years since the release of the first public playtest packet, eight years since the release of the starter set and the books. So based on where we started and how it's gone in the intervening years, what have we learned and what can we expect going forward? And let's, when, as we do this, we're now going to talk about game design. So we're going to dig a little deeper than we might normally do into game design topics. Uh, so I hope even for people who are casual players that what we talk about might illuminate your experiences a little with you know, whatever games that you're playing. Yeah, and, and game design, you know, sometimes we think of game design as, you know, what is the probability of rolling two dice and, and where's the bell curve look at and what am I trying to do, you know, attack bonuses versus armor classes. But but it's also things like, what is your first chapter in the book? Mm-hmm. True. You know, how do you teach the game? Um, to whom are you teaching, right? Are you teaching someone that it's their first role-playing game? Um, which D&D often has to do that burden. Other RPGs often say, you probably know what a role-playing game is, but if not, here's a super quick overview. Now on we go. D&D often has to take on that burden of mm-hmm. assuming that this is somebody that just, you know, say, saw the D&D movie right. and goes out and picks this up when they happen to see it as an impulse buy. Most companies don't worry about those scenarios. D&D has to. And so that's part of the the lens of game design is also to think through what is my audience doing? What does this book need to look like? The layout of it, all of it. Mm-hmm. And so last week we talked about just some of the basics of you know the presentation, uh, like what's in the intro to the player's handbook. Uh, so now we're going to start by talking about the first thing that you really get into in the player's handbook, which is building a character and how it's... Uh, yeah, how it's presented and how it might change if it should change, you know, those sorts of things. So I, I want to preface all of this with the fact that any game you make is like a machine or you call the system, if you want, that's built out of smaller machines or smaller uh, subsystems. So, you know, D&D as a game is this huge thing. Whereas character creation is a smaller part of that machine, yet it needs to interface with all of the other parts to to make it work. So as we go through and talk about experience points and hit points and ability scores and all of that, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about each of those subsystems individually, 
but we have to always keep in mind that they are going to interface with this larger system that we may need to talk about in order to bring the full picture to light. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and so this chapter one, after it gets through the intro, it says, all right, step-by-step characters. And the purpose of this chapter is to walk you through the process for building a character. And it's an interesting section because probably for most folks out there who are listening to this show, you no longer look at this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In fact, when I open my book to this page, it's usually because I'm looking up because my my brain forgets this, where the tears are separated. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, wait, where's tier three? And where does it begin? And so I look this up. I actually have it in my own spreadsheet now. So I open that instead. But that's what I used to look at the most in this. Um, And and there may be other reasons why, you know, somebody who's who's a a longtime player or has been playing 5e for a while looks at it uh, like the point cost for ability scores mm-hmm. right so one of the first things that they talk about is experience points to get across that idea that your character uh in general will be gaining the these experience points and based on those experience points will be gaining power as you go uh, so you start at first level and as you gain experience you will be increasing well right away we have uh, an element of game design in, in D&D that has, beca- has changed over the years, has changed pretty significantly. If not officially in the rule book, then unofficially amongst players and designers. Yeah, that's, that's a fantastic thing to think about because there are so many DMs, especially long-standing DMs who love XP, And there are a lot of players who like receiving XP. And it is one of those aspects that is very D&D-ish, right? We see experience points talked about everywhere in video games and card games and board games. Gaining levels is such a, you know, obvious part of the language that comes from D&D. And it would be really bizarre if D&D removed XP and just said, you know, you level when your DM tells you, here are some tips for how to do that. Um, (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's and yet <laughs> many of the adventures that have been published recently not only uh hint at this sort of story-based leveling, but they just tell you to do it. And they don't take any effort in counting out the experience points that monsters or other things would give you in the game to make a match on yeah the experience point leveling versus the story-based leveling. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be really curious to see whether 5.5 tweaks this. I suspect it won't if it continues along its path of trying to be compatible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if it were, if the decision at Wizards were like, you know, let's make this more of a 6E and less, and less of a 5.5, I could see this become an optional system. I don't think we're at the point where they will cut it. Yeah. And I suspect that's probably where I'd end up as well. I think I'd be a little afraid as a designer to remove XP at the character level. And I think instead I would, I would, but I would probably, you know, talk about the elephant in the room at this point. I would probably say, 
XP can be fun to track. Your DM may be tracking it or they may not be. So you may be leveling according to this chart or you might not, right? Like mm. you, you want to know that up front. Yeah. And there's a possibility that you could simplify the XP rules rather than talking about it in the hundreds and thousands, break it down into single digits and tens, right? Uh, you know, you, yeah. le- you level with 10 experience points and you get one experience point for each uh, encounter that you complete right. uh, to, to change while keeping experience points to assuage, if you will, the longtime gamers um, still have them there, but make them work completely differently. One of the other issues with removing experience points is that there is, there has been this system for building encounters based on the experience points of a monster. So by removing those, you would also need to change that. So changing the cogs in one machine would force you to change the cogs in this other machine. Right. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the biggest aspects of 5e that I would probably personally want to change is encounter building. And, but that is so integral to how all of it works that I, you know, again, that compatibility piece becomes far more difficult. Now we did see 4e primarily referred to things by level, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's entirely possible to remove the word XP and still have it essentially, you know, in the background, it's in the DNA of, of how the math is working for counter creation. You don't need XP for it. Uh, in fact, what 4E was doing was basically saying it's all based on this level, which when, if you need to count XP, here's how you do that, right? And here's the chart. Mm-hmm. So uh, XP is, is a element that is talked about. And then we get into hit points, particularly starting hit points when you're creating a first level character. Uh, what, what's your take on, on this concept? You know, I, it's, it's a good question. How, where do you want the starting hit points to be for a good experience? And what are the effects of tweaking it? So we, we can see that, for example, in the first box set, some players would get crit or attacked by multiple goblins in that very first encounter in, in right. the Lost Mines. Uh, lost mine and someone would die in the very first combat yeah you know should that happen um you know in discussing this latest box set some folks are saying that a good thing is none of these encounters are sort of surprisingly deadly and and so there's that balance of you want characters to live and do well but you also don't want such an enormous pool at level one that the game can sort of never recover from it. And it just is adding more and more. Um, so yeah, I, I think a good question is, should you have a bigger pool up front and get fewer hit points over time? Mm-hmm. Um, such that it's becoming increasingly deadly. Yeah. Where do you want your deadly, right? Yeah. Do you want to, to, to have that you, once your character survives, say levels one to three, you'll probably get to finish their story. Yeah. You know, with a few chances, which is kind of where we are right now, right? If you make it through the low levels, right, and really just the first two levels, mm-hmm. you'll probably keep surviving, but you're going to have a couple of places where it could be iffy. You know, a couple of surprises and encounters, or things go sideways, a bad trap, but yeah. you know, make it through and you're fine. Or if you can be brought back from the dead, you'll be fine. 
Yeah, and it's it's more than just deadly at those levels. It's swingy, which is which is which is even worse than deadly because deadly you can fix as the game master. Swingy is much harder, right? When by swingy, I of course mean one encounter will go super easy where there's almost no challenge at all. Whereas the same encounter with a different group, even if the group is stronger, could be super deadly just because of the die rolls. Uh, So a way to eliminate that swinginess for me would be uh would be valuable but to do that you can't then carry that on to higher levels uh because it's already not deadly enough at those levels uh so it's you know it's yeah. a challenge and tying into monster design and encounter design you know we have things like the cr0 creatures that are practically useless even at first level Mm-hmm. And then even the CR18 monsters do so little that they quickly become of little use to the mm-hmm. game. And so I wonder if it could be possible to actually do levels one and two feel a bit like levels one. Mm-hmm. So you're not getting a giant bucket of hit points at level one, but that sort of your first two levels are giving you a little more hit points. And then it's a very small amount over time, such that your low CR threat monsters could be significant at both levels one and two, mm-hmm. and maybe even a little bit at three. But but then we're ramping up from there in terms of the, the ability to challenge these characters. Um, yeah. And that might be what I would want to play with, but I you know it would require a lot of playtesting to see. A, a, a simple way to get rid of that swinginess or that, that deadliness at low levels is when characters of the lowest levels die, it's generally not from three failed death saves. It's generally from outright death because you hit that negative threshold with a single attack. So changing that uh, rule at low, at a lower tier might help fix it. But then, like I said, you you would might want to change that at the at a higher tier, um, which sort of makes different games, which we'll we'll talk about later when we talk about yeah. tiers of play. But yeah, it's I mean, as you can see, all of this is very interesting yeah. and and detailed, and so many moving parts to to try to uh, to figure out. Yeah. So this is one where I would want to make a change. I suspect we won't see a change. What what would you do if this was your, you know, you you have the magic wand? I I would definitely make different rules at different tiers. Hmm. Um, it don't have to be strong uh, rules. It doesn't have to be pages of different rules, but just the way things like death saves or negative hit points, death works make it more forgiving at the lower levels make it less forgiving at the higher levels to keep that balance of there's always a a risk of of danger um and to be honest what i would do is combine character creation session zeros and low level first level or zero level play into a its own thing that you could do to make character creation and those first few 
encounters its own sort of game. That could be very fun to play. Uh, And then you can uh, more organically throw in other session zero kind of uh, discussions, not just about safety tools, but about the type of campaign it's going to be and the themes we're going to cover and all of that. A a game like Fate, right? Character creation is a game in itself where you're making bonds with the other players and those bonds become important things that you can use as mechanics in the game. Uh, I would try to move in that direction a little bit. Uh, But then you also have to make it optional, not optional as in don't do it, but optional as in if you have no interest in this and you want to start at fifth level, then there's a way to just do that. Well, that's where I, I agree with you 100%. And if this were a 6E project to, to rebuild from five to six, right? what I would want to see is some sort of framework concept. Because when I look at all these steps, you're asking a lot of a person. Mm-hmm. And, and just imagine you've never played an RPG before and you look at all these steps and the steps have names like, level hit points proficiency bonus and and to us that's english mm-hmm. but to a lot of people it is game ease and completely confusing right when what you're really thinking you know when you pick up this when you open to this chapter what you want is i want to be an awesome hero mm-hmm. of this kind this is yep. what's in my mind right mm-hmm. i want to be legolas i want to be you know whoever uh and those concepts you want to get you want to execute on that concept before it leaves the player's brain. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this book, this chapter starts with sort of think through your concept. And then it gets into this detailed, many, many steps. And what I would rather see D and D do is say, think of your concept, grab this framework, mm-hmm. then do these quick things to finish that framework off. Later, you can go back and customize it more. You mm-hmm. get, you know, tweak it as, as after you play your first sessions. Yeah. Um, or if you are a super expert, cool. You can, you can get into any part of the framework and customize that further. Yeah. And, and right. that's, yeah, that's sort of what I mean by make character creation its own game. Yeah. Which is slow down this process. And, you know, a framework is a great way to do it. Uh, and rather than giving the, we've all tried, well, you and I, I know have tried to teach people game and you want people to understand the underlying mechanics of it and you want them to understand their choices, but going through and saying, well, a fighter is this and a paladin is this. By the time you get through the list of just the classes, people have already checked out. So there needs yeah. there, there needs to be a way to gamify that to make that interesting rather than just give this list that may or may not mesh with what the player uh understands. And a lot of this stuff is almost like an illusion because it, it's like a proxy for just making you think that you're doing things but you do more thinking than is necessary, right? So like if you're making a rogue most of us know that there's a certain way that your abilities are going to go sort of a, mm-hmm. B or C. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we treat it as if it's a blank canvas and you've got to do all of it, you know, and, and it's like, why? Right. And that framework could just say, 
is your rogue one that's mainly gonna work with dex, you know with dexterity weapons right find a way to dress that up mm-hmm. or are you more of a brute rogue a or b mm-hmm. and 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 you're good you've got your framework and you're moving on and yep. that's going to be great for 90 percent of players out there True. and the and then you can tweak it at the tweaking stage which can be an optional later stage right to go and mm-hmm. tweak your framework but but there's a lot of that that's just kind of um it's illusionary fun that isn't necessarily fun. And if we've ever done a new campaign with new players, that whole, like, this is so telling, right? That you have to wonder, you have to ask yourself, should my first game be building characters? Right. Or should I just like start with pre-gens and let them tweak them later? And, And that's, that just tells you this is so, such a big deal. Right. It's, it's too big a deal. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, and that's a discussion we've had, I think, before the best way to teach a game. And with the new box set, they're good. They go the pre-gen route. They don't even tell you how to create a new character. They're just like, here is your character. Here's what your character can do. Now go. Uh, So, yeah, it's all that needs to be worked into this new edition. Yeah, so then the next thing we see here is proficiency bonus, which is some pretty deep, you know, I think for a new player, pretty deep terminology about, oh, you know, you're going to get these proficiencies for mm-hmm. attacks, for uh, skills, for, you know, saving throws. Um, and so it, it has to break down into this, you know, let me tell you this game ease because you'll need to understand this going forward. Yeah, I, I'm... I like it as a game mechanic. I don't like it, as you said, as as something that needs to constantly be referred to because I feel like you should be good at what you're good at and you shouldn't need to to always be figuring this. Um, yeah. And it's, it's not even a, a very complicated mechanic, right? It's add this number if you are proficient in this thing. Um, and in order to for more advanced players to get the exact flavor of character they want, there should be a choice of where do you put this proficiency? Where, what are you a little bit better at? But mathematically at low levels, you're 10% more likely to succeed with something you're proficient with or not. If you're talking about a saving throw, uh, uh, is that worth all the hassle? Is that worth all the math? Just that 10%? Um, yeah. I don't know and, if it is. is it- is it in the right place? You know, like third edition would just give you lots and lots of skill points. So then instead of a proficiency bonus that ties it together, you were adding all these points every time you leveled. And then your attacks were at your character level. And those were going up based on the type of class it was. So that there wasn't a unifying system behind it, which means one less thing to track. It, it's a good question. It's, it's a hard question. Mm-hmm. Uh, proficiency bonus is sort of elegant in, in that it's, one number applied to everything. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of been the skeleton of the game. And in fact, more so than ever, right? We see all of these new powers and things. And that's the thing is it's not just in the background because so much today, as we see it in Earth Arcana, is based on proficiency bonus, proficiency number per day. So mm-hmm. it's no longer just a thing. Like I think when I first taught 5e, I would say, you know, you, you, you almost don't even look at this little number that says proficiency bonus. Right. But now you do all so many things are triggered by it. And and there's nowhere on the sheet that you track this. So like almost all these different little features that may even not be in your character sheet need to almost have a little tick of Mm -hmm. how many of these things have you done and used. And yeah, 
yeah, I mean, we get a little into the fourth edition uh, idea, right, of encounter powers or how many times daily powers. And using the proficiency bonus, you know, it makes sense because it's already there. But for me, uh, especially when you get somebody who's multi-classing, if you have a class that says you can use this ability of your class a number of times per your proficiency bonus, and you multi-class with seven different classes, now you have seven different things you can do that are actually increasing with as your proficiency bonus increases. Uh, so if you're not into complication or tracking, now there's seven things to keep track yeah. of instead of just the one. Um, yeah, and, and it's worth noting that design-wise what this means is that you are you're never just saying, okay, this feature, I just want it to be used X times per day. Mm-hmm. You, it, it's, it's where X changes, right? Yep. Like, so versus, you know, before older editions would almost be like, you can use this D four times mm-hmm. or, you know, roll a D four, that's how many times you get to use it. Or it would just be once, um, or it would state a number in, in more like fourth edition and, and, and editions like that. And so yep. we're now getting to this, to this language of proficiency bonus because we're afraid of rests because we realize that rests are something you can't, um, you can't be sure will happen. And that's, mm-hmm. that's good. That's important to note that we don't know how right. many times we will rest. So we've got to get rid of the, if it being based on rest, which is what 5e started with. Right. But I, I think it, and you know, while you and I are pontificating on what, what we might do, what we really mean is we might go into the design meeting with this challenge, right? Because right. the way you, the way you actually do these things, you don't just say, you know, I'm the head of D&D, uh, we shall not use proficiency bonuses. What you do is you walk into a meeting, you say, folks, let's talk about proficiency bonuses. Mm-hmm. I want you to help me decide whether this should go. Right. Right. And I'm what, thinking maybe it should. Yeah. And what are the alternatives if yeah. we don't use it? What, what, what do we plug into these right. other areas or how do we change these other areas that we've been using proficiency bonus for? Yeah. So, yeah. And, and, you know, rest, long rest, short rest is such a huge part of the rules, but never meshes quite right with the adventure. No. Uh, no. And we saw that, you know, one of the last changes in play testing was the length of a long uh, yeah. short rest right, right. To, to extend it to an hour from 10 minutes and yeah and that is a huge impact on play right or none at all because people are used to the 10 minute or five minute rest so they just say uh we're just going to carry that over from the last edition which then changes the way the game plays and changes if you are constantly refreshing your your short rest or even your long rest you know, then if if every two encounters you're getting a long rest, think about the difference then between that and somebody who does 20 encounters before a long rest. Yeah. I mean, it's it's huge. That's the game right there. Yeah, that's the game. And you have to tailor all of that with the, you know, what are we what are we selling here? Are we saying a 5.5 or a six? You know, then that yeah. really can vary what, where, what you do uh, yeah. along those same lines, Sean, ability scores. Oh, boy. Uh, well, I, I think I've made my <laughs> my uh, theories and thoughts on ability scores. Uh, yeah, there, there are many ways to, to do them. Uh, as we've seen, you can roll for them. You could have point by, you can have the standard array. Uh, what we 
what I would try to avoid in any role playing game is having one character very powerful and one character or more characters less powerful. Allowing characters to roll, allowing players to roll their characters' ability scores is asking for imbalance right from the start. Does it, is it always a train wreck? No, but there's more likely to be that train wreck if you do allow that. Yeah, and and there's that issue that in the original aspect of the game, ability scores ranging generally from 1 to 18 with a few fun and wild exceptions didn't do that much except at certain levels, depending on the ability score, depending sometimes on the class. Right. And the addition tweaks how true or not that statement is. But the it was always sort of a lot of number for small effect. Mm -hmm. Maybe third edition was the one that gave it the most effect. It tried to really make, you know, every ability score mean something and do something and, and, and matter at various levels. Now it really is just pluses or minuses. Mm -hmm. And so the large number, the one to two digit number zero to 18 or higher just is a plus or a minus. Mm -hmm. And and that always begs the question, should we just have the plus or minus? And I, and I would say even in the parlance of today's speaking, you know, it used to, you used to make more jokes like an 18 strength. And I, I don't hear that. I, I think even the parlance is gone. It, it really mm -hmm. is just, yeah, it's probably time to move on. I, I think it's, it's not even registering at a cultural level too much. Right. And we can just, you know, you don't see stranger things making jokes about an 18 double zero strength, right? Like it's, right. we can, we can just. Yeah. Th this move beyond it. Yeah. This harkens back to that conversation about uh, the game being a machine. There are some things that, you know, we have on the machine that actually make the machine run worse. But since we're so used to seeing it on the machine and we can't imagine a machine that we're playing without it, that we find a way to leave it on and the aerodynamics is terrible and the gas mileage goes down, but we still leave it there because, well, it's always been there. And, you know, zero to 18 or zero to 25 or zero to 30 or whatever the range is, depending on mm -hmm. the addition, uh, doesn't really mean anything anymore. And I think that that there are some things that um, that have enough of a cult, cultural tie-in that they essentially are branding, marketing, et cetera, and matter. And ability scores used to be that, but I'm not convinced they still are. Mm -hmm. So that's, whereas I might say alignment, I could argue still is. Uh, don't, don't even get I know, started I know. there. <laughs> I, I, I touched it. But all right, so <laughs> switching tack slightly. Mm -hmm. I think if I'm going into design meeting, I might say, can you sell me far down the other way, right? Can you tell me ability scores matter and let's make them matter, sure. right? And if you start designing down that path where it matters, whether it's a 13 or a 17, is the game better at all? And, and I doubt it would end up better in any way to make it really matter. And so if we can't really make it matter and it isn't super culturally significant branding, whatever, then bye-bye. Yeah. Alignment. I could argue that I could come up with ways to make alignment rock. And in fact, even some of the recent unearthed arcanas that were, you know, for Dragonlance were more alignment centered. Sure. Those were potentially cool ways to use alignment. 
And while I can totally sign off with removing alignment, mm -hmm. I think you can also make the case that you could make it cool. And so it's a conversation to be had. Ability scores, I don't even know that it's a conversation <laughs> for me. I would just vaporize them. Okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we'll have the alignment discussion, I'm sure, down the line. Uh, but we're, we're coming up on an hour here. So uh, we, we have much, much more to talk about. So much more to talk about in this uh, interesting conversation that we will touch on again next week. So welcome home, Teos. Thank you for thank you, uh, thank you for sharing your pent up gaming knowledge with us. <laughs> and uh, thank you to our listeners out there. If you would like to become a patron of the show, and thank you so much to all our patrons, you can go to patreon.com slash MMP. Uh, Teos, you've been doing a lot of writing when you're not uh, traveling the country. Where can people find your work on social media other than at Roll20.com? <laughs> find me at alphastream.org. From there, you can reach my YouTube and other efforts. And on Twitter, I'm at AlphaStream. Sean, where are you? I am on Twitter at Sean Merwin. You can follow the podcast Twitter at MasteringDD. And we also now are part of the Misdirected Mark YouTube channel where you can watch and leave comments. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, what are we going to do now? I'm going to go kill some monsters with my 18 slash 67 strength, which just feels terrible because it should be 18 slash 00. It's better than my 18 slash 66 strength. <laughs> or is it? Or is it? I, hmm. <laughs> <laughs>